So last Sunday, I was sitting there working on my sermon. Of course, last Sunday, you know that we were uh, earlier in the text, and we were talking completely about sexuality and sexual purity, and so I needed, you know, I was really concentrating, working on my sermon and spending time in prayer, and my phone went off, and it wasn't a text, it was a call, and it was a text from that 1704, and you don't know the rest of the number, and you don't have it in your phone. And so how many of y'all answer those calls? Yes, yeah, that's right, like 1%. Everybody else is like, nope, if I don't have you in my contacts, and not doing it. And I didn't answer, and then within 30 seconds, he called me back again, and I'm like, all right, this is not typical telemarketer uh, behavior. Let me answer the phone. And I answer the phone, and they're like, is this Mr. Cummings? I said, yes, sir. They said, this is the Catawba County Sheriff's Department. My full undivided attention was there, right there, before I forgot about the sermon, didn't even know what I was preaching on. And they said, Mr. Cummings, have you ever at any time lived in Orange County, North Carolina? To which my mind starts going a million miles an hour, and I'm like, no, sir, I have not. Are you sure that you've never lived in Orange County, North Carolina? At this time, I feel propelled to volunteer some information, just to kind of help out with the situation. I said, no, but my daughter lives in Orange County, North Carolina. She is a student at Chapel Hill. Hmm. Immediately, I knew I should not have said that. That was a dumb thing to say. Don't volunteer anything that will help law enforcement. I'm just kidding. Volunteer all kinds of information, but it just didn't work for me at that moment. Mm. Could you be confused as to whether you lived in North Carolina's Orange County? Now, I don't know how they typically do questioning over the telephone. This is my first time that I've been questioned by law enforcement over the telephone, but this is the most non-threatening. I'm like, no, I am fairly certain I know everywhere I was living in North Carolina. And they said... But you're sure that you didn't live in Orange County, North Carolina. Also felt at that point to volunteer even more information. And I said, no, sir. In 1973, I was born in Nash County, North Carolina. Then in 1987, I moved to Wake County, North Carolina. Then in 1991, I moved to Watauga County, North Carolina. And then in the year 2000, I moved to Catawba County, North Carolina. I have never at any time during the 46 years that I have been alive lived in Orange County, North Carolina. Well, I'm glad to hear that because right now there's a fugitive on the run in pursuit of justice by the name of Paul Cummings, who is from Orange County, North Carolina. There's somebody out there named Paul Cummings perpetrating evil acts in Orange County, North Carolina, and I'm getting phone calls. And so I said, no, sir, that is not me. And then I relisted everything else off again. My daughter's lived in Orange County. This is Nash, Wake, Watauga, Catawba, but this is not me. Okay, sir. Thank you very much for your time. I hung up the phone, and, and as I'm pushing the button, I, I literally, like the last thing I said was, goodbye. It's not me! And I hung up. And Danielle comes home, and she's like, why are you so white? And I'm like, I about got arrested over the phone. I don't even know if that's a thing. But anyway, no, it's not me. No, it's not me. No one reading the scripture can come to the end of the scripture and say, no, that's not me. No, that's not me. Because when we talk about idolatry and temptation, he ends with the perfect phrase here. And he says, there's no temptation that's going to overtake you that's not common to man. And another way of saying that is temptation is one of the most common things that every single believer will be faced with. Not on a yearly basis or not once every decade, but every day. Every day idolatry and temptation and they're so commonplace that he says it right there verse in verse 12 there is nothing new and so one of the things when we think about temptation is we got to go back and look at how satan works and we think about when we think about temptation we think about just a simple phrase if it ain't broke don't fix it and that's what satan subscribes to 
You know, he, he's got all of the same tricks of the trade that he's been using since time immemorial, and he uses them again and again and again, and there's nothing new under the sun about temptation. Matter of fact, if you read the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis, one of the things that the older devil tells the younger devil as, or the pupil devil as he's tempting someone else, he says, if you can just keep your patient from actually thinking about the temptation, from actually analyzing the temptation, from actually doing any kind of mental exercises at all about the temptation, if you can just give it to him, you're in much better shape than if he allows himself to begin to think about, well, what happens when temptation happens? Then the other part about this text that I I feel compelled to talk to you about is oftentimes we feel like there is this dividing wall between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I actually grew up in a theological seminary that really strived to say that the two almost had nothing to do with one another, that this was the Jewish Bible and this was the Christian Bible. And I couldn't tell you that that was any more false than it is. It is absolutely completely false. And Paul gives you this incredibly seamless continuity between what is happening in the Old Testament and where we are now. And he does it also on the back of the fact that Christ does it as well. Christ is seamless in the way that he talks about what happened in the Old Testament and what happened in the New Testament, so much so that we call it the Bible, obviously. And so this lesson from the Israelites about their idolatry and about their temptation is something that he wants the church at Corinth to learn. So let's jump right into the text. So if you've got your Bible, follow along the Bible with me. Again, we're in 1 Corinthians 10, starting with verse 1. And verse 1 says simply, as remember, it says this, remember. Remember the Israelites. They were delivered from Egypt. And they weren't just delivered from Egypt. They were delivered visually, powerfully, and might of God. And this, was, this one event was celebrated and referred to for generations to come. There are entire books in the Psalms, hundreds of years later, talking about just this simple event. So he says, remember how it happened. In verse 2, he says, and that they were baptized in the cloud under Moses. And to be baptized is to voluntarily place themselves under Moses' leadership is what's going on. Verse 3, you and I, you and I need to come back and do a little bit of digging farther into this to remember what is going on. So verse 3, he says, listen, they ate supernatural and supernaturally provided food from who? From God. Not supernaturally occurring, supernaturally provided. And that this food was given to them as a means of building their faith that they needed to gather it daily. They couldn't overgather it, but they needed to gather it daily because it taught them that God was in the business of taking care of them. How? Not just regularly, but supernaturally. And they all undertook this. And then we get this also Pauline evidence of the Trinity. Now, it's not that Jesus in verse 4 literally is the rock, but what we have to remember is that Jesus is the greatest evidence and the greatest instance. Jesus himself is the greatest instance of God's providence ever. So anytime God provides out of nothing to his people, it is evidence of Christ being there. And the people drank of it. This is God-provided water. Not like a well that people strive and dig for and place rocks around, but water that was provided of no work of their own. And so he says, just like Christ was, Christ is God's providence. And the ultimate providence of God is Christ. And so just like that, Christ was with them in the desert. And then in verse 5, I want you to do this, is to notice the term all. And Bob, Paul, Bob's going to talk about this just in a little bit, but all. And it says all the people experienced the manna. All the people experienced the bread. We've got to remember they weren't just all given manna and bread. They were when they complained about the manna, God gave them quail. They all partook in the supernatural blessings of God. But not just that. 
We've got to go back and we've got to reread this in our mind's eye. What else accompanied them? Well, first of all, they, wa- they saw all the plagues. Second of all, the Red Sea was parted in front of them, held up. Third of all, when they got to the other side of it, God smashed the waves together on the Egyptian soldiers as they came. They got to the other side and they celebrated. Then right after that, you've got to realize that God goes before them in the night with a pillar of fire and in the day with a cloud of smoke. And then when they go up and they go around the Mount of Sinai to get the, to get the Ten Commandments, God overtakes the entire mountain and it looks like it is on fire. They're not just hearing about the presence of God, they are feeling, experiencing, and seeing it. So in verse 6 and, six and 7, Paul challenges the Corinth community and he says, Listen, history and testimony for the believer today of what has happened in the past of God is a priceless commodity. Don't let what happened go to waste. Instead, learn from it. And he said this too, and it was as he then begins to talk about the Israelites' sin, and he uses the word crave. Even though they had been given the water, the manna, and the quail from God, they craved evil things. And verse 7 then goes back, and there's another Old Testament reference. So if you want to make a note of this and go back and refer back to later on, in verse 7, he's talking about Exodus 32.6. And now in Exodus 32.6 and verse 7, the Israelites, while Moses was away getting the Ten Commandments, what happened? They, they, they chartered Aaron to, to cast for them a golden, a golden calf that they were going to worship. And so even though the manna and quail were given to them, even though they saw God, they tried to honor God in worship the way pagans honored God. They would not honor God in worship the way God commanded, but the way that pagans did. And so one of the things we got to realize about idolatry and temptation is that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. And if we go back and we read Exodus 32, we'll see that they wanted to worship God, but they wanted to worship him the way that the pagans did. And so they said, hey, these images represent God who brought you out of Egypt. And so they fell down and they engaged in pagan practices, and they did it probably with good but ignorantly stupid intentions. So in verse 8, verse 8 is referring back to in the Old Testament, Numbers 25. In Numbers 25, Israel succumbed to temptation. The Israelite men joined with the local Moabite women in ritual sexual worship of Baal. And this is also the crazy story of Phineas, who comes in and has to kill an Israelite man and his Moabite woman as they come together in the middle of the camp in front of everyone. But it is so, it is so egregious a sin that God unleashes a plague that kills tens of thousands of the Israelites. But then when we come to verse 9, he refers back to, again, another Old Testament failing of the Israelites and another instance of idolatry and temptation, and that comes from Numbers 21. Right after, in Numbers 21, right after God had given the Israelites victories over the Canaanites, remember, they have seen it, they have experienced, they've walked in victory in God. Right after that, they complained about God's providence. Seriously. Moms, you know what this is like. You just put Thanksgiving dinner on the table. We're just washing the last dish, and your kids come and they say, Oh, Mom, I'm so hungry. Why don't you ever have anything for me to eat? And you, that's when you throw them off the deck and DSS comes to get you. But, right, you're like, did you not just see what just... The Israelites do the same thing. The Israelites do the exact thing and go, so God sends snakes through them, and they bite the Israelites and kill them. And it's not until Moses erects... A, 
makes a bronze snake up on a pole, holds it up, and if anyone looks upon the snake that is raised up on the pole, they're saved. And this is then referred back to in the Gospels as if it's just as the Son of Man will be lifted up, and whoever looks on him and puts their faith in him will be saved as well. Well, we keep on going on into verse 10. Verse 10 is a reference back to Numbers 14 and Numbers 16. And again, the people, even seeing the providence of God, complained about God. And so God sends the destroying angel. An angel and actually what happens is there are, there are epicenters where the complaining is coming from different tents. And so Moses says, get away from those people's tents. The destroying angel comes and literally the ground opens up and swallows the, all the families and they're gone. So in verse 11, he says, listen. Don't let the painful tragedies of the past of Israel and the failings of their faith go unlearned and forgotten. Instead, learn from them. And in verse 12, he says, remember, the Israelites lived in the strength of God, in it, saw it, experienced it, tasted it. They had a visual representation of it. And yet they did not see it. They did not see it, and they forgot about it. And in verse 13, he says this, God knows all about temptation. God knows about temptation. It's not a surprise to him. God knows about temptation and God permits temptation. Because as much as it is a chance to sin, it is also an opportunity to honor God. And how does he end this text? He says, God will always show you a way out. And this is not an oversimplification. This is just something that we tend to forget. A way out of temptation. What did Jesus say in John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And what do disciples do? We walk in the way. And so he's telling them whenever temptation comes, Christ is the answer. Christ is the way. Walk in it and walk in him. I don't often go back and look at the same sermon I preached on the same text. And the main reason I don't is because when I do, I don't usually like those old sermons. So this week was an exception in two ways. One, I looked back at the sermon I preached on this text 26 years ago, my first year at Corinth, and second, I liked it. So I, I didn't want to just preach the same sermon again, but I liked two things about that sermon in particular. That was the way I began it, and that was the way I ended it. So the way I began it was talking about a guy by the name of Simeon Stylites. And uh, let's see if this is going to cooperate with me. So there we go. So Simeon Stylites, who lived in the 5th century A.D., was well-known because he invented a, a new way of holiness. So he started out like, I'm going to be really holy and I'm going to go join a monastery, but he was so severe in his self-discipline, they kicked him out of the monastery. Like, you can't tie yourself up with cords so that you can't eat more Skittles or whatever. So they, they sort of like, you're too severe. So Simeon invents a new way of being holy. He's going to get away from everybody. He builds a pillar that is nine feet high so he can avoid temptation. And then he builds another one 18 feet high. And then he builds another one 33 feet high. And finally, he builds one 60 feet high for perspective floor to ceiling is 56 feet in this sanctuary so he's higher than that he's like I'm going to get away from every possible temptation and he lived on pillars for 37 years and people would throng to come see and hear Simeon. And, and they tell us that thousands of people came to Christ because of Simeon. So that's kind of one strategy for winning over temptation, like totally get away from it. That's probably not your strategy. How's yours working for you? 
Okay, so we're, that's what Paul is doing here. He's talking about our strategies for, temp, for overcoming temptation. Now, I received an email just this morning. It was actually last night, but after I went to bed, where somebody said, like, why is it so important that we study the Old Testament? Well, Paul, this is one of the places where Paul tells us the answer to that question. And his answer is, it's the same uh, sins that we wrestle with, the same temptations, but it's also the same God, right? So there's a lot that we can learn. These people are given to us as examples. And by the way, I know you're trying to read the quote. Give me your eyes for just a minute. So we're getting ready to decide in the next week or so what Old Testament book we're going to study from September through November. So if you want some input on that, if you want to make some suggestions, now's your opportunity. What Old Testament book are you most intrigued by? And uh, so, but we're going to, I'm going to have like this question in front of me while we study the Old Testament over the next three months. So what Paul does in this passage is he gives us four ways in which God shows up for all of us. And he keeps repeating this word all in reference to the Israelites, but by implication, it's true for the Corinthians and it's true for you and me as well. So he says, God guides all of us. He protects all of us. He includes all. All of us, the idea of baptism here is that you, you are now part of the family. That's what I talked about with Justin and Heather and Darcy yesterday. Like this is a symbol that you're in, right? And God provides for all of us. So in the same way he did that for all of them, yet most of them died. And so his next point is, look, uh, there's the rock that was there for all of them. He's there for us. The rock was Christ. But there are sins that will kill you, and he gives you, and he literally is tying in. He doesn't give references like we would, but he's talking about four specific stories in the books of Exodus and Numbers where the people actually sinned and then death resulted. And Paul is saying to the Corinthians, these are the same kinds of sins that you're wrestling with in your cultural context, and if you go in that direction, these sins will result in your death, physical and or spiritual. So there's the sin of idolatry. And again, these are stories that Pastor Paul referenced, but they are probably familiar to you as well. Sexual immorality, that people actually, you know, um, engage with the, the Moabite women and that they also worship their gods. Testing the Lord is basically the sin of impatience. Uh, we're not waiting for God to come through. We're going to take care of things ourselves and the sin of grumbling or complaining, which again is a Corinthian problem. So Paul would say, you Corinthians are guilty of the same sins. These also result in death. And he would say to you, like, which ones of these, to which ones of these are you most prone? Which one are your temptations? Maybe it's not even the list. But like idolatry, are you, are you tempted to sort of cover your bases spiritually? Maybe with another religious idea, but maybe with <clears throat> your God of money or your God of luck or whatever it is. Like, is that, is that your issue? Or sexual immorality, crossing the boundaries of where God wants you to live? Or testing the Lord, saying, I know God's not going to come through, so I guess i got to do this myself, my own way. Or is it grumbling and complaining and people know of you as a person who, who engages and initiates conflict and is at the root of many conflicts? Paul says, like, examine yourself. Is this the same thing for you? Because it will destroy you. And then Paul says, well, let me get practical for you and give you God's way out. So in these last couple of verses 
um, he's going to give like five things. And you're probably not going to remember these, and it's okay, because you're going to remember what I tell you after this. But I'm going to tell you what Paul said first anyway, because he's got five strategies for overcoming temptation. First of all is watch out. Because if you say like, oh, I'm good, like I'm not worried about any temptations, then you're probably most vulnerable. Second strategy, look around. You think God's picking on me right? No, God's not picking on you. Nothing you face isn't common to everybody else who's a human being as well in terms of its category. Third strategy is look up, because the same God that was there for the Israelites is there for you, and God is always faithful, and when you turn to him, he will, he will be there for you. And then his fourth strategy is don't quit, So there's a common saying, God will not give you more than you can bear or more than you can handle. It's one of those proverbs that I like and don't like. This is where it comes from, okay? So there's truth in it. But on the other hand, it's not about what you can handle. God is faithful, and he's the one who is working through you. And second, you never want to say that to somebody in the middle of their situation because God God does you Excuse me, God does give you more than you think you can handle, right? That's a regular occurrence. God will give you more than you think you can handle so that you can turn to him and realize that you can't. But God will not actually give you more than he will take you through. And at the other end of it, you will look back and say, you know what? God was faithful through all of it. So there's another one of Paul's strategies. Don't quit. And then finally, his fifth strategy is choose God's way out. The word uh, way out is, um, architecturally, it's egress. This actually came up before the worship service because we're getting ready to take that soundboard back there and put it up on a platform, and there's not going to be an egress from that aisle to that aisle, which means there's not going to be a way of escape, right? You've got to go straight out. Uh, In their time, they would have thought more of a mountain pass. Like if you're in an army and you're in the middle of a battle, there's always a way out. That's the idea that's that's here. So in other words, temptation, um, uh, the yielding to temptation is not your only option ever. God will always bring you, give you a way out. So those are Paul's five strategies. And let me tell you the other part of this sermon from 26 years ago that I really liked. And the reason I can brag on it a little bit is because it it wasn't original. Like, I borrowed it from a wonderful uh, preacher by the name of Stuart Briscoe, whom I had heard in chapel at Columbia Bible College. So what Stuart Briscoe does is he gives you a little bit of Greek and Hebrew in his sermon on temptation, and you go like, oh, here we go again. Like, you can't understand the Bible if you don't know Greek and Hebrew. In the footnote of your Bible, at least in the NIV, What I'm getting ready to tell you is right there. You just don't read the footnotes often enough. And the insight is that when the Bible uses the word temptation, it's the same word as the word test. And in in this passage, in verse 9, this Greek word, pyrazo, is translated test. In verse 13, it's used, it's translated tempt or temptation. What's the difference between a temptation and a test? A temptation is an enticement to do evil, A test is an opportunity to do the right thing. So let me illustrate it for all of you who are students. Uh, Before I do that, let me just point out that in the Bible itself, there are times, and this is kind of troubling to us, when God and Satan cooperate on the same situation. The most famous one is Job, right? Job, Satan says, 
I'm going to make him fail. And God says he can pass the test. When Jesus goes into the wilderness, the Spirit leads him there to be tempted by the devil. Now, that's a little troubling when we think about our situation. Like, are God and Satan in cahoots here? Well, only in this. When Satan wants to make you fall, God wants to see you pass. So, for the students that are here, let me give you a little insight about your teachers. When a teacher gives you a test at the beginning of the year, they want you to fail. They want you to know that you need the rest of the year. Like, no teacher wants you to come in and score 100 the first day. Then why go to fourth grade or 11th grade or wherever you are? Like, the teacher is giving you a test wanting you to fail. Don't tell them Pastor Bob said they're being the devil at that moment, all right? It's not a good thing to do on your first day of school. But that's what they're doing. Like, I want you to fail. If a teacher gives you a test at the end of the year, you better sure they want you to pass, right? They, they don't want you to think that this was all for nothing this whole year of teaching you. Well, what I said uh, that sermon 26 years ago is this, and this is what I really want you to remember. Every temptation is an opportunity for you to pass a test. Whenever it comes, an opportunity to do the wrong thing, there's a chance to do the right thing. So I actually put in your bulletin the quote from Stuart Briscoe, but I'm also going to put it on the screen. You can take it home with you in your bulletin. This is where I'm going to end. Temptation is not only an opportunity to go wrong, but it's a lovely chance to do the right thing. It's not only the work of Satan, but also the will of God. It is not only a potential seduction, but also a possibility for strengthening. Not only a means of exposing our weakness, but also of experiencing God's power. Not only the devil's way of destroying us, but also God's way of developing us. Not only the doorway to disaster, but also the gateway to discovery. And all God's people said, let's pray together. Father, there will be moments today when there will be something that comes in front of us that might be Skittles and it might be something a whole lot more critical to that than to our spiritual life. And yes, when we're aware of it and sometimes when we're trying to fight the hardest against it, there are seemingly at least a whole lot more opportunities to do the wrong thing. Thank you for the encouragement of the Apostle Paul that we don't go there alone, that God is faithful, that Christ is the rock who walks with us into and through every one of those situations and that you will guide and protect and secure and bring us home to you. So may we this day, this week, this month, this year be those who choose by your power to pass those tests. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.